Let's take our Bibles this morning, and if you would turn to the book of Job, chapter 10. And I'd like to read to you the whole chapter, verses 1 through 22. Job, chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Hear God's word. This is Job speaking in response to what the Bildad had to say. He says, my soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man? That you should seek for my iniquity, search out my sin? Although you know that I am not wicked, and there is no one who can deliver deliver from your hand, your hands have made and fashioned me in intricate unity. Yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray, that you've made me like clay, and will you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk, curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? You've granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. And these things you have hidden in your heart. I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me, and I will not, and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I'm wicked, woe to me. If I'm righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I'm full of disgrace. See my misery. If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion, and again you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and war are ever with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease. Leave me alone that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. A land as dark as darkness itself is the shadow of death without any order, where even the light is like darkness. And thus far, God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us as we examine Job's response to Bildad. Job is in such agony and unbearable suffering that he is encountering, not understanding why he's suffering. Father, he's simply told by his friends, you're suffering because you've sinned grievously, and therefore you're suffering grievously. And he knows that's not true. And yet he doesn't know the reason. Father, we have some insight as to what happened. We know that Job was singled out by you to Satan as a just man, blameless, upright, one who fears you, shunned evil. We know that Satan challenged you with, does Job fear you for nothing? 
thinking that if he would just take away all of the things in which Job was blessed, he would curse you to your face. Father, thank you for what, what we're learning from this, Father, that you have purposes even in the sufferings of your people, Father. And they're actually out of love, love for us, Father, that you would, for, for many purposes that you have in mind, to sanctify us, to show that we really are showcases of God's grace, that uh, your people who perhaps would be prosperous and great as Job was, will they still be pious? Will they still be good when those things are taken away? That's the big test. And we know that that would would come to pass. Job didn't know it right away. He would learn it by experience. Help us, Father, as we dig deeper into what's happening to Job here. We pray indeed that you'd open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We see in chapter 10 a continuation of Job's response to what Bildad had to say. Back in chapter 8, Bildad, and chapter 9, Job, and now we continue with his response to chapter 10. And it's really a continuation of what Bildad had to say in verse 3 of chapter 8. If you turn back a page or so, does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? He's asking, is God unjust? And of course, behind that question, of course, the answer should be, of course, God is not unjust. But in his mind, Job was experiencing this justice because of his sin. Grievous sin. It has to be to have such grievous suffering. And therefore, in Bildad's mind, Job was suffering justly. And essentially, you reap what you sow. Job, that's what Eliphaz, the previous speaker, had said to Job, who Eliphaz, having accused Job of being a hypocrite, that's what you used to counsel people with, and now it happens to you, and and you're a fool to cling to this idea that somehow you're blameless. Of course, Bildad has something to say which must have stung when Job heard it in verse 20 of chapter 8. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless. Very sarcastic. God had declared Job to be blameless. And that was actually Satan, in a way, speaking through Bildad, as as sort of shaking his fist in God's face. Uh, He'll not cast away the blameless. Of course, Bildad thought that Job was anything but blameless. Because he goes on to say, nor will he uphold the evildoers. That's who you are, Job. Well, Job does agree with Bildad, as we saw last week, in the sense that, yes, of course God is not unjust. God is just. But his problem that he's wrestling with and can't get to the bottom of it is that, yes, I know God is just, but that doesn't explain what's happening to me. As far as his two friends were concerned, Eliphaz and Bildad, the only recovery that they could offer to Job for this situation that he's in is to become a penitent. Admit it, confess it, own up to it, and humbly go to God, which of course would completely undo what God had to say about Job, that he was a one who was blameless and upright, who feared God and shunned evil. Well, 
as we saw as well, that Job can't convince his friends so far of his contention that he is not this wicked man that they're saying. He doesn't deny that he's a sinner, but he's not a grievous sinner. And he maintains that he's blameless. We saw him state that several times in chapter 9. But what Job wants right now is, is vindication. Vindication from God. That, that I really am what I think I am. And uh, what you've told Satan, although Job was not privy to that conversation between God and Satan. And the result is that he wants to contend with God. Go to him. And we've already seen in chapter 9 that uh, he saw that as uh, he would get nowhere. Because God is too much for him, too powerful for him, too overwhelming. If he was really examined by God, he would find all kinds of sins that Job has committed. His his argument would be destroyed. And besides that, what's really confusing to him is what he said back in verse 22 of chapter 9. It's all one thing. You can almost see him like holding up his arms like that. He destroys the blameless and the wicked. It doesn't make any sense to me. That's where Job is at. His understanding of God's justice is really becoming distorted in his mind. And for Job, what's happening to him is not consistent with Job's perception of God's justice. And he desires to confront God. It's almost like he, in chapter 10, wants to come at God like a prosecuting attorney. And questioning the witness and, and what, what I know about you and heard about you and, and what's happening to me, it, it doesn't add up, God. Something is inconsistent here. It doesn't make any sense to me. And although, by the way, as we've seen Job, Job uh, travel through this so far, he, he's a desperate but he's also admitting he's, he's bitter about this. And because of these feelings he has, he makes it very clear in chapter 10, I'm not going to hold back when I come up with these questions before, before God. I'm going to vent. And so what do we see him doing? Look what he says there in verse 2. And this is really the first thing that he would present to God as he comes at him like a prosecuting attorney, essentially saying, what's happening to me right now is not consistent with your goodness. That's what he says in verse 2. Show me why you contend with me. I don't get it. It doesn't, does it seem good to you, God, that you're dealing with me this way? Certainly, in his mind, what's happening to him is unwarranted, this oppression. He's willing to accept discipline and correction from God. He understands that. But what God is doing with him is is more than he can bear. This is absolutely unbearable, what's happening to him. That question that Job says there, does it seem good? Satan must have smiled when Job said that. Questioning God's goodness in this way. Doesn't that bring us back to creation? The, six, the, the days of creation, God's each day said, this is good. 
And that final day of his creating work, creating man and woman, this is very good. And the implication is what God did in creation, it was an expression of who he is. It's really an expression of the, the goodness of God. That he would do what he did in creation. That's the very thing that the Satan went after when he dealt with Adam and Eve. Did God really say you couldn't eat from any of the trees? Oh no, we can, we can eat from the trees, we just can't eat from this one. Because we'll die. No, you won't. You won't die. What will happen if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is you'll become like God. He knows that. That's why he doesn't want you to eat from it. He wants to keep you where you are. He wants you to, to uh, deny you that. He's not good, Eve. Not good, Adam. You see what he was doing there? How could he even... How could that thought even be entertained in the minds of Adam and Eve? Not good? I have life. We live. We breathe. We have unhindered fellowship with our Creator. There's no barrier that exists. I love my Creator. He loves me. And He teaches me how to live whereby I might glorify Him and enjoy Him. And look at the, the surroundings. This is paradise. This garden is, is wonderful. And look how He's provided for us. There's plenty of food. We have Adam and Eve. We, we have companionship. We love one another. We've been given a purpose in life to fill the earth, to subdue the earth. We have a purpose to, to glorify God and enjoy Him. We're not just wandering, doing nothing. Why, why even the trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, those are expressions of God's goodness. The tree of life, just a tree, and yet it, was a, it had sacramental value in that each time they partook of it, they were reminded of the wonderful promises of life and provision and purpose that God had given them. And the tree of, and thereby they had an opportunity to put on display what was in their hearts, their love for God, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That, that had a purpose as well. Here's a way to not only say you love me, but to actually demonstrate that you love me. What a privilege. What, a, what a, a, an act of God's goodness towards them that he would do this for them. And even in the fall, even after Adam and Eve said no to God and were driven out of the garden, God is still benevolent. God is still good. Didn't Jesus make that point? In his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 at verse 45, he said to his hearers, this is how you would show that you're sons of your Father in heaven. You would do what he does. What does God do? He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And that's how we're to be too as God's people. And demonstrate that goodness that God demonstrates towards all, even those who are in rebellion against Him, who have nothing to do with Him. And Paul makes a point of, of, of showing 
that God uses his goodness that was Jesus described there in Matthew as a way of drawing people to himself. If you've ever studied some of the pagan gods, you know that they're just versions of us on steroids. They use people. They have no love for the people. They love one of the, each other. They're their own idols. Not this God. This God is good to all. And he says to, to those who, who, who would judge people in Romans chapter 2, in, in those opening chapters, of course, he's addressing the various categories of mankind to show that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he addresses those who, 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 are, who are judging other people. And he says, do you despise the riches of his goodness in Romans 2.4? His forbearance with you? Even though you have nothing to do with him, he puts up with you and he's good to you? He's long-suffering towards you? Those are expressions of his goodness. And here's what God has in mind. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Away with your pagan gods. Come to the one true God who, who is a good God. And he's demonstrating that to you, even though it, it's undeserved. And that should cause you to think, he's a good God, one I, one I can approach, one I can have a relationship with. In our, not even the sufferings that we go through, signs of God's goodness towards us. God's love, that's Paul's point. In Romans chapter 5, at verse 3, he says this, We glory in our tribulations. He's not a masochist. He understands the use that God makes of the sufferings that we go through as Christians. It's out of his goodness and love, he says, we glory in them, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. God has in mind our sanctification, about bringing out the fruit of the Spirit, putting it on display. And perseverance, why he doesn't stop there, perseverance brings out character. And character develops hope. And that's the great gift that is ours, the hope of what's to come. That there really is the new heavens and the new earth, where all the effects of the fall will be gone. And he goes on to say, this hope uh, doesn't disappoint. The hope of the world does. Uh, The world can't deliver on anything. But God delivers on his promises and he's faithful. And this hope that that is, is being worked in you because of God's activity in you won't disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's God who brings about this hope. And he's not going to, he's going to finish what he's begun. So God is good even in the midst of his sufferings. Of course, Job didn't understand that at the time. He will go through experientially to come to that understanding and realize that God loves him. I would say to you and to myself that Satan uses the very same tactics that he used with Adam and Eve today. Have you ever in your mind, uh, when something has happened to you that you don't like, questioning God, does it seem good to you, God, that you're putting me through this? That's something Satan would say. He wants you to, to come to that same under the, the, the lie that somehow God is not good to you when he takes something away, when he brings about a particular disappointment, 
when a financial disaster or health or what's going on in the world? How can, how can God be good? That's what unbelievers say. How can God be good? He allows these earthquakes. One person dies, another is spared. It doesn't make any sense. It seems to be that the wicked prosper in this life. How can God be good? Because He is good and God has purposes in all of these things. Yes, it's for the sanctification of His people and judgment for His enemies. Isn't God good by allowing this world to continue all these years after the fall? Is that not the most incredible display of forbearance with a fallen world that God waits, waits? Gives people time to to repent, time to come to God. Sometimes he gives dramatic demonstrations of it. It could end real quick, like that tower that fell. Repent or you too will perish. Make good use of your time here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. God is forbearing with you. But that will end one day. One day the door of the ark will be closed. I love to read Psalm 103 when I visit people in the hospital or in their sickbed. We read there in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Some will say, well, some people die of a disease. Who heals all your diseases. There will be no diseases in the life to come. This body which is dying will be resurrected, immortal, incorruptible. He truly heals all our diseases ultimately. Who redeems your life from destruction. Crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy. Who satisfies your mouth with good things. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God is good. Well, that was one inconsistency that Job couldn't get around. It it seemed inconsistent what was happening to him with God's goodness. But he has another issue with what's happening to him. It it seems inconsistent with God's knowledge. He makes it very clear. I don't think of you as a man. You're not a man. A man can only see outward things. A man can't get into the depth of, some, of who somebody is to find out what, how someone it really ticks. Sometimes people will give clues to what's inside, but a man can't get in there. But God can. God knows our hearts. He knows everything. Absolutely everything. What can be seen, what can't be seen. He sees everything. I think men like try to hide, don't we? We can hide from one another, but there's no place in the world or in the universe that you can hide from God. He's there. He sees all. Nothing, nothing is hidden from his sight. And oh, by the way, he's not in a hurry with what he's doing. So, to Job, this doesn't make any sense as to what's happening with him, what he's going through. To him, it's like he's he's put me on the rack. He's torturing me to get at the truth. 
That's what they used to do with people, to torture them. Some places they still do to find out what's really going on inside. They, they, they torture them. And finally it comes out, the truth. He's saying, God, you don't need to do that. You're God. You already know what's there. Wasn't that the, the, the wonder that David experienced in Psalm 139? Verse 1 we read, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down, you know when I get up. You understand my thought from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word on my tongue. But behold, O oh Lord, you, you know it altogether. You've hedged me behind, before. You laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. We read in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 46 at verse 9. Speaking through Isaiah, God says, I'm God. And there is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Matthew Henry wrote that to God, nothing is past, nothing is future, everything is present. When God, in answer to Moses' question of who shall I say sent me, answered with, tell him I am sent you. The best we can say about ourselves is I was and I'm becoming. God says, I am. Time, space, I invented time and space. A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is, is one day. And, and Job is baffled by this. You know all these things. Why do you have to put me through this? Man would do that to finally get to what's there. To finally get me to admit. Why are you doing this? You know it already. You know I'm not wicked. And we know that too because God made it very clear several times in the opening chapters. And therefore he's implying to God, look, you're unjust by using your power to, to hold me prisoner like this. You've got nothing on me. Makes me think of Joseph's experience recorded for us in Genesis. You know what happened to him? He was kind of a tattletale as a young man with his brothers, and they didn't like him very much, and they sold him. They first wanted to kill him, but they sold him thinking they'd be done with him. He ended up in jail in Egypt. But through God's providential work, he was elevated to the second behind the Pharaoh himself. Joseph had a proper perspective on what was going. That was suffering that he went through. And he wasn't relieved right away. But God worked it out with his purposes to bring about the greater good, which is to have a place in Egypt where Jacob and his family would come and some 400 years later there would be a multitude of Israelites. And that's why he was able to say to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, and they must have been trembling at this moment. 
Jacob's dead. Maybe Joseph's been holding off on his revenge. Now he's going to really lay it on us. And he simply said this, As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. You wanted me dead. You sold me to those merchants on their way to Egypt. But, there's one of those beautiful, that word in the Bible, but God meant it for good. In order, what? To bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. That's exactly what God did. Job didn't have the benefit of understanding that. But we do. And we're called to wait on the Lord when you're going through something. Not questioning His wisdom or His goodness or His knowledge. To trust Him. Isn't it good to know what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 121 at verse 3? If you're one of God's people, He won't let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. When I was thinking about that, I couldn't help to, but to think what happened with Elijah and Mount Carmel. You remember the great showdown between uh, Elijah's God and the Baal. Each were to build an altar and call down fire from their gods. Of course, the prophets of Baal, nothing happened. Elijah taunted them. Maybe he's taken a nap. That's why he won't come down. Maybe he's relieving himself and is busy. (laughs) No, our God does not sleep, slumber, always there, everywhere. That's what amazed David in that Psalm 139. You see this in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Speaking to the people, be strong, be strong and of good courage. Don't fear nor be afraid of them, the, their enemies. For the Lord your God, He's the one who goes with you. He will not leave you, nor will He forsake you. And that's true today for God's people. He will not forsake you. Why? Because the Son of God was forsaken. There's the wonderful principle of substitution. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because Christ experienced that, we're not forsaken. We now have life. We have forgiveness. He who was rich became poor that we might become rich. The Son of God became a Son of Man that sons of men can become sons of God. Well, Job brings out another inconsistency in his mind. Uh, What's happening to me is not consistent with your purpose in making me in the first place. He says in verse 9, Remember, I pray that you've made me like clay and you'll turn me into dust again. It doesn't make sense to him. Why? What's the point? You make me and now you're going to unmake me? And then he gives here a really wonderful and a poetic description of the conception of a child using similes. 
not only the conception of a child, but the gestation period of the child in the womb, and then finally birth. We're not just a mass of cells in a womb. That's nonsense. We're talking, he's talking about a human person, and they understood that here long before there was ultrasound, long before there was DNA, blood types. This was known. To abort a child in the womb is murder. Doesn't David give us a similar description again in Psalm 139? For you formed my inward parts in verse 13. You covered me in my mother's womb. I'll praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Job describes the the skin and the flesh, the outer part of what we are. And then describes what goes on eternally. He knit me together with bones and sinews. What a wonderful description. Proverbs 16.4 The Lord has made all for himself. There's purpose is what he's saying. To glorify him. To be showcases of, of his perfections and of his grace. But he's also went on to say in that same verse, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. There's purpose in the wicked as well. To show God's justice and his wrath. It's a pretty scary verse in that regard for anybody who's outside of Christ who's not yet come to God on his terms. And and Job is saying such power. That went into the creation of a human being in the womb, from conception to birth, the the, the labor that went into it, the, the love that was demonstrated there, the wisdom. And now you want to destroy it? But look what he does in verse 12. He, he makes this assertion. You granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. He's arguing now with God. He's contending with God there. He's making an appeal to God. The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hand. That's what Job is saying. Don't undo it. Don't decreate. It doesn't make sense. And there's a kind of a, a flicker of faith here. There's perseverance that Job is, is exhibiting here. He's not giving up. And yet he, he says this in verse 13. These things you have hidden in your heart. I don't understand it. You know it. I don't. It's mystery to me. But then he sinks again. There's, there's that little elevation for a little bit. 
And he sinks again. Even if I were righteous, he goes on to say. Certainly if I was wicked, I would deserve judgment. But even if I was righteous, I'd be treated by you and the world as guilty. And it's not stopping. It just keeps getting worse. And so he offers up a kind of a summation like a, an attorney might do. And he essentially reverts back to something he said back in chapter 3 when he first spoke in the presence of his friends. Verse 11 of chapter 3. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. I would have been at rest. Essentially it goes back to that same thing. It would have been better for me if I'd never been born. And we're seeing deep depression here. Frustration. And he's bitter, angry, and despair. And he's even just saying to God, Look, I don't have much time left. Can't you just leave me alone? And for the few days or whatever it might be that I have left, I could at least experience a little rest. That's all I, I'm asking for at this time. A few days of peace. And yet again, we see signs of faith and hope. Why? Because down deep, he's still calling on God. When all else is falling apart, where does he go? He goes to God. God hasn't changed. He isn't. Yes, he's he's sovereign. He's powerful. All-knowing is everywhere. Job knows that. And if that's all he was, he might be a tyrant and a despot. But Job knows that's not the case, ultimately down deep. He knows God is good, ultimately. He's questioning it here. He's wavering. God is good. God is gracious. God is merciful, slow to anger. And Job is moving in that direction. Psalm 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all. Believer, unbeliever. People have nothing to do with God. Atheists, rebels, you name it. His tender mercies are over all His works. You believe that? Do you doubt it? Do you sometimes ask the question, does it, does it really seem good what's happening to me? Does that misunderstanding of his goodness keep you in a state of doubt as a Christian? Frustration? If you're an unbeliever this morning, is it that misconception of God's goodness that has kept you away from God? Why would I want to go to a God who's not good? But God is good. You're here, you're breathing, you get up and do things. 
You don't deserve it. None of us do. And yet he's good to you. He doesn't destroy you immediately. He doesn't immediately bring you before the the great white throne and condemn you and sentence you. He says, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Rest from what? A guilty conscience. There's no unbeliever, even a, even an atheist, who does, who does who escapes a conscience. That little built-in courtroom. We know when we've done wrong. We know when we've done something that's not right. We know when we've done something that's right. We also know that because of that, there's accountability. And God is offering relief. That's what Jesus is all about. Paul made this very clear in Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners. God didn't wait for you to get your act together, to clean yourself up. While you were in your worst state, he sent his son for you if you're one who is trusting in Christ. Paul came to that understanding. He called himself the chief of sinners. That's why he couldn't get over this love that had been shown to him. The love of Christ compels me. This is the one who gave himself, who loved me, gave himself for me. That's why he was on the cross instead of me. He experienced the wrath of God for me. I was an idolater, terrible idolater. And yet he's redeemed me. Free grace. And he also gave me what I needed to embrace it. The gift of faith that I might believe. And now I have peace with God, peace with my circumstances. I have a hope, a real hope, a living hope, because it's already begun in this life. And I know what's ahead. I know where I'm going. To be with the Lord and and my, my faith will become sight because I'll see Jesus and I'll be like him. And my hope will be realized. But love will never end. It will be an eternity of love. All of the effects of the fall be gone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this discourse of Job. Father, we can, these thousands of years later, we can feel the, the, the pain and the unbearableness of it, Father. Uh, crying out and searching for answers. And thank you that we know the end of the story. And we know that he'll get there. And it will be wonderful. And it will make sense. And we we have the benefit of the the rest of the Bible to explain these things to us. Helps us to make good use of that. Father, we truly can say to you that you granted us life and favor. And you cared for us and preserved us. You've done it in your way. Your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, but we know they come out of ultimately your your goodness, that which Satan went after, that characteristic of yours that Satan went after first, your goodness. So many question it. You are a good God. You're good to all. And I pray if there be anybody here struggling with that, Father, that you would clarify that for them, that even in the worst set of circumstances, you're a good God. All things work together for good. 
for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.